Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. So my guest today is Fitness Feelings, and this will be another episode on the uh, madness of the current moment as pertains to the never-ending pandemic. So last week I had one interesting and unique perspective on what accounts for that, and this week my guest will will be providing another that I think is is compelling and also intersects with longstanding themes of outsider theory, particularly related to the work of Rene Girard. So thanks for joining me. No, thanks for having me. So you had a thread recently, and I'd like to start there, which begins by um, making the bold claim that the COVID pandemic is a modern myth. So this, you know, might be misunderstood to simply mean, I don't know, something like it's not real or whatever. But um, in fact, what you're doing is is far more uh, subtle and and incisive um, because you're relying on the particular version of myth that is developed by um, Rene Girard. So perhaps you could outline that argument for us here. Sure. Yeah. Um, so you're exactly right. And I did get some responses like, oh, you're saying there isn't a virus it's, and, and so on. And I'm really honestly not interested in that question at all. Um, for me, as you're saying, the idea of the myth really corresponds to uh, Gerard's reading of some of these basically ancient foundational stories. Um, and I think what he is, his, what he allows us to see basically is that there's a way a way to read this situation that is not the kind of like i would say sort of like intra managerial debate that is very common so when i say myth basically what i mean and you can we ideology is a sort of modern form of myth and the conversation i was responding to kind of was referring to covid as a kind of containment ideology, which nonetheless has some kind of interesting paradoxes. So what I would argue is that the myth of COVID is not that COVID doesn't exist, but merely that COVID, the myth is that COVID is actually responsible for all of the massive social, cultural, political changes that we're seeing right now. That in other words, we genuinely believe that COVID is guilty of causing and uh, indeed necessitating everything that we're doing right now. In my view, everything that we're doing right now is basically something, and we can discuss this more um, you know, if it's of interest, that, that at some level we're kind of deciding to do. Of course, there's people pushing it, but it's kind of an activity of the whole culture, which is in this, uh, in this time is kind of like really the entire planet in some sense. And so that's what myth is. It's sort of, uh, it's basically a story which covers up essentially persecution, which is an attempt to restore, restore a kind of cultural order, restore a functional system of difference that um, basically 
you know, is basically kind of what we think of as a kind of a good time, or you might say a, a golden age, or just a kind of like a, a functional period of a civilization or a kind of culture. I don't know if that is clear. Yeah. So, I mean, a couple, a couple further remarks. Um, so one interesting point about, you know, this question of whether in making this argument, you're sort of denying the reality of the virus or something like that. Um, I mean, one thing that Girard, so, I mean, it's interesting to know that Girard was himself in a sense, a, a realist. Um, he did, you know, he, he was explicitly critical of a kind of postmodernist sensibility, right? Where, and I mean, he, he believed that, um, myth in fact was referential in a certain sense right that it, it it referred to real things although not exactly the things that it was that it was portraying so we could get into that so this isn't a sort of postmodern argument where you bracket the existence or not of the reference of the story um i think instead the significance of it uh, as gerard would suggest is that what happens in a particular context which is the context of crisis which specifically, and we can get into this more, is represented as is often represented as plague, right? Throughout myth and literature, um, is this process of undifferentiation, right? And so, what does this mean? Well, one thing that it means is that the um, you know biological pathogen is constantly conflated with and undifferentiated from the other things that it's associated with. So in other words, um, we can't tell the difference between the pathogen and the sort of social phenomena that it unleashes, right? They become blurred. And so this is a thing that I, and, and so this is part of why, I, I mean, in a certain sense, in, at least in this particular context, the, you know, I mean, I mean, and I think that this is sort of what you were pointing at that, you know, the, the existence of the virus as a pathogen can be sort of taken for granted, but the whole point of trying to make sense of this is to understand the ways in which it gets conflated with all of these other things, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and then, you know, the other thing I'll say here is that, you know, I see a lot of um, examples of this just in standard media coverage um, because um, often they'll say, uh, I mean, I mean, and I see it also in just people's daily life, but you know, they'll, they'll talk about the risks of the virus, but in fact, it's clear that they're talking about the risks of people's reaction to their fear of the virus, right? So the two, there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of metonymic displacement, right? Where the virus, the, the dangers posed by the virus actually turn out to be social dangers posed by how people respond to and how, how, how governments respond to it, right? So, um, so, you know, you saw this in discussions of like supply chain issues, right? It's like the supply chain issues were blamed on the virus, right? Now, more realistically, the the um, the, the responsible factors would be more the particular, you know, political and social responses to it that um, brought about those you know, snags in the supply chain, right? But but those two things get conflated, right? So that's an example. And then the other yes. thing I've seen a lot in my own life, and I imagine you have too, is that people are, when, when you try to figure out what people are so afraid of, particularly if they're, you know, people in good health, whose demographic profile suggests they're at very low risk, um, it turns out that it's not really clear that they're afraid of the actual pathogen itself so much as the various 
kind of um, social consequences of infection, right? But, but the point is that those two things become undifferentiated, right? So in other words, their, their fear um, of the virus is actually often seems to be a fear of, you know, the idea of having to isolate for 10 days and the cascading effects of that on other aspects of their life, like, you know, having to take care of kids or, yes, you know, ha- um, fulfill other familial responsibilities. So again, it's this situation that the, the point for Girard of, of the, the circumstance of plague is that it occasions this kind of undifferentiation where you can't tell the difference between um, things that, you know, would seem to be ontologically distinct, right, but become mixed up in all sorts of ways. Yes, it's very, the question of undifferentiation is really interesting because I think you, you actually, I think you mentioned this in your previous um, podcast episode and it was and possibly even the one before it, but just talking about how this is not the first disease scare that there has been, right? I mean, if you look at the past 30 years, there have been all kinds of different respiratory things. If you go back far enough, you have HIV AIDS and none, well, those things maybe had some kind of crisis elements, right? They didn't, they, they didn't create anything like what we're seeing now. And so it's sort of, I think, underlying this current crisis uh, where meaningful distinctions and differences, et cetera, are kind of abolished in some sense is I think this, um, like as Gerard would say, there's like an underlying cultural crisis that's essentially just being conflated with a biological event, you know, for lack of a better word. And most people, don't really see that. They just think, they really do think that everything, even if they disagree with what's going on, they think that it's something that's occurring because of a medical, you know, medical necessity um, and so on. And it's also interesting to note, uh, and I, I discussed this a little bit on Twitter, how much of the various things that you were, you were describing, right? Like needing to isolate or not wearing a mask and the social repercussions of seeing not, uh, being seen not wearing one really are all attempts to bring that sense of difference back into the equation in some way, right? But all the, but it doesn't it never quite works in this situation because like for example with masks, you know, they do create a certain boundary, but they also homogenize everyone even more, right? And so it's there's a way in which we're kind of floundering in our attempts to respond to this really I think for people frightening moment of um, like you said, of, of undifferentiation. Right. And so the function of myth is to, I mean, and, you know, we could cite sort of, um, you know, well-known examples of this. The one I've spoken about before is Oedipus, right? But the function of myth is to assign a kind of causality. And this is this is the way in which myth is kind of related to science, right? That although, you know, Girard has some interesting points about how exactly they're distinct and also where they intersect. But, um, you know, the function of myth is to assign a causality, right? Is to, and to ascribe agency. Now, this is actually where myth and science kind of part ways in the sense that, um, you know, and, and this is also something we could get into in terms of the sort of um, the, the disgrace that has overcome the sort of public health, um, world, because basically what, what they're often doing is, 
assigning moral culpability for what's essentially a natural phenomenon, right? And that's mm-hmm. that's the that's one of the important functions of myth, right? Is to not not merely um, offer an account of causality, but also to offer an account of moral agency and responsibility, right? And particularly to um, assign that to particular um, figures who can be in some way scapegoated or treated as, um, as uh, you know, the, the sort of carriers of all misfortune. But then in, 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 and you get into this in the thread you wrote, but, um, but, but then can also achieve a kind of divinity. Um, and, and so that's, you know, that, that's a, a complicated sort of process we should try to break down. But yes, the, I'd say the first part of it is, um, you know, easily uh, explain or is easily exemplified in, in a case like the Oedipus myth where you have, you know, this figure who um, is um, who is blamed for a series of transgressive acts. Right. Which are themselves kind of examples of undifferentiation. Right. Because there's a kind of undifferentiation of generations, right. In the form of incest, um, you know, that, you you know, the, it's, it's like that, what's that country song? Like I'm my own grandpa or whatever. It's it's sort of like that, you know, it's, it's um, that, so that's the way that incest is a kind of figure of undifferentiation, right. That, yes, that, that represents that crisis. Um, But, what it also does in the form of an accusation is say that, you know, this, um, this series of transgressions is what has unleashed this um, larger process of social undifferentiation, which has the form of a plague, right? And so if that, if that source, um, that, that sort of causal agent, i.e. Oedipus can be identified then in some way that danger can be cordoned off again in some way, right? By, yes, by it, being expelled, yes. um, by, be, by being expelled from the society and, and thereby allowing for it to be, you know, cleansed once again. Yeah. And there's a very interesting point here, I think, which is that, you know, myth in this sense, right? That everyone has to really believe that the scapegoat figure is causing all of society's ills is, obviously false right in our sort of contemporary understanding and yet there is a certain weird truth to it or a certain real you could say function of myth as a kind of social technology and that when it works well it actually does end the crisis right and so what we have is kind of with with covid in my view a kind of botched attempt at the return like i think this in terms of a mythic story, because it's so identified with science, which is something that people believe in very deeply. I mean, the science obviously has pr- produces empirical results that validate a lot of scientific research and scientific work, but a lot of the belief in science is, you know, has a religiosity to it. And so I think it's interesting to me, everyone views COVID as being the debate about COVID really tends to cloak the whole thing in a kind of veneer of advancement and sophistication where we see basically, you know, whether you have the, it's the, whether you have the kind of conspiracist who views it as like the most advanced form of social control ever known, or if you view it on the other side as kind of like 
people failing advanced system and systems and technologies. In other ways, it's like both of these perspectives share that we're kind of failing to deal with the future. Whereas in a, a way, we're really dealing with something that's very much more like the Oedipus story, like kind of the return of something very archaic and something very primitive that nonetheless does not function quite as well as it did in the time, even of Sophocles, like to say nothing of the events that Sophocles is referencing. Right. And this, I think, you know, my illustration of this, this kind of, I mean, so right, there's this idea in Girard that you have a kind of, um, a kind of effective so social technology of, of scapegoating that is sort of reinforced by myth, right, that, that allows for this kind of um, periodic resolution of crises through the attribution of moral agency to some individual who can be scapegoated, expelled, um, and then, you know, that, that allows a kind of restoration. And then the, the function of myth is to, um, is, is to kind of reinforce that process um, kind of ideologically or proto-ideologically. So, you know, th th then for reasons that actually you discuss in our, um, in, in your guest post on my blog, Outsider Theory, which I'll link in the show notes, you know, for G Gerard sort of argues that there's a, 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 a waning of the efficacy of this technology, um, basically in the wake of the kind of um, the, the impact of, of Christianity as a sort of, um, as a sort of anti-mythical uh, structure. So we don't need to get into that too much, but I would point people to um, to your post that, that touches on exactly this. Yes. Um, but, you, you know, the, the, the illustration of this that I would offer is um, of this, this kind of inefficacy is uh, Trump, right? Because in many ways, I mean, I actually wrote all the way back in like 2016 before he was elected about how he was coming to fulfill this function of a kind of scapegoat king, right? Um, and, you know, this was something I was interested in throughout his presidency. Um, you know, he has all of these odd kind of resonances with this, this tradition of, of sort of scapegoat Kings, um, which we can also tie to a figure like Oedipus and myth. Um, but, you know, without getting too much into that, which again, I can point people to my writing on the subject. It was very clear in 2020 that for many people, and even today you can find people you know, um, trying to summon up this this kind of potent myth again that for many people, Trump was the kind of carrier of, I mean, he was the ultimate moral agent who was was identified as the the cause of the plague, right? Um, and and there were, you know, all sorts of attempts to treat him as this, um, as the, the ultimate vector, right, of you know, that basically his, um, his supposed, you know, his sort of incompetence and um, indifference towards this danger, you know, had, had made us all vulnerable to it. And I'm not saying there's nothing to that idea, right? There's sort of a, a reasonable version of it that would at least be worth entertaining, but, you know, it's nevertheless also true that, <clears throat> you know, the, the most obvious way to, to sort of debunk it and reveal it as a myth is just to show that, you know, all sorts of um, countries with very different governments were um, similarly afflicted despite a range of policy 
approaches and ended up, um, you know, suffering many of the same consequences. Right. So, so the point is, you know, but, but nevertheless, it was sort of ideologically necessary to try to identify him as this, um, as this, uh, you know, as the, the moral agent who could be, um, who could be um, charged with the, the ultimate responsibility for the spread of the plague. And then, you know, in, in some ways it was clear that what the, you know, the Biden campaign was, was essentially claiming was that, you know, by allowing us to get rid of this guy, you will um, in some way be able to lift the plague. Right. And so, you know, one thing that's interesting is that I think there is, you know, and and this was something I tried to, you know, I, I think, you know, Fabio offers one perspective in the episode last week about why, why this doesn't work. Um, But you know, what's interesting is that I, I think there was a part of me that imagined, you know, once it was no longer useful to basically um, load uh, all of this culpability for the virus on Trump for sort of propagandistic reasons, there was good reason to imagine perhaps the Democrats would be able to just sort of say, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll just stop worrying about cases and and we'll, yes. we'll kind of downplay oh, yeah. this whole thing. And there, and there's been, you know, I guess there have been attempts to do that here and there, but overall it hasn't really worked, right? This this idea that by expelling Trump, the the sort of scapegoat, you could restore, um, you could restore order and sort of wholeness to the community, in you know, in this sort of um, <clears throat> in this sort of mythical way of the sort that we see with Oedipus, like it, it, it just didn't work, right? It keeps, it keeps coming back. Um, and it, the, the threat can't be diffused, right? It, it keeps, it keeps being resuscitated for reasons that Correct. are some, that sometimes seem a little bit enigmatic, particularly because they don't, they don't seem to be, you know, immediately politically beneficial. I mean, I think there's this kind of right-wing idea that like the Democrats made up COVID to beat Trump. And like, I mean, again, there's sort of like a, a certain crude insight in that, but it's obviously wrong. Like it's obviously one of the worst, um, one of the worst attempts to explain this partly because we'd have to understand why the same shit is happening around the world. Um, and yeah, yeah, exactly. Without, it just you know, with, in sense. totally different political panoramas. So, um, so the point is, you know, obviously there was some sense that the Democrats benefited from this perception of chaos and crisis that they could, you know, assign responsibility to Trump for, but they haven't, you know, getting rid of him and literally kind of expelling him from <clears throat> essentially from the, the sort of public eye by, you know, completely banishing him from social media in a way that really does resemble this kind of, you know, ancient practice of like banishing the scapegoat from the walls of the city. It oh, didn't, yeah. it still didn't work, right? It, it didn't, you know, and, and this is, just goes back to your point, right? That there's a kind of waning efficacy but that doesn't, you know, instead of sort of um, it, 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 that merely um, accelerates the search for scapegoats, right? That it, exactly, exactly. It just keeps, right? That's, that's the whole, for Gerard, that's the whole idea, which is that it's like, yes, like we're, there is this social technology basically of persecution, of scapegoating, which is then kind of repeated or you seek that kind of catharsis in sacrifices and then in cultural forms that reference the sacrifices and it kind of just we sort of lose sight of the original technology in some sense 
But yes, we reach a certain point where, in his argument, due to Christianity, but nonetheless, for whatever the reason is, you reach now and we're not really able to mythologize ourselves in the same way. It's not to say that nobody is mythologized by it, right? Like there clearly are people who were to some extent willing to believe that Trump was the source of like all evil or whatever. I mean, I've met people like that, but it's just not, there's just not enough of them. They're not, we, we just don't have that. You know, we just really don't believe in it anymore. And so we're left with this endless process of persecution with no renewal, basically, which is really a very dangerous position to be in. And I feel like there's a connection there between essentially what Gerard's description of the apocalypse is and kind of how we are beginning to enter into that phase of history, if that makes sense. Not, well, not by apocalypse, not meaning like an asteroid's gonna kill us all, but essentially meaning that myth has totally ceased to function. There is no renewal coming, if that makes sense, in any persecutory sort of form. And so we're just sort of left to manage conflict in kind of in, in other ways, which are less effective. And so I kind of see the reason why COVID has gotten as far as it has, the, the myth, right, as it were, is because it, it seems to me, again, a failed, but still an attempt to bring back basically elements of the sort of old sacred in a kind of technological guise. Like something I thought about a lot was Gerard remarks on um, Heidegger's Der Spiegel interview, I think in 1966, when he talks about how the only thing that will save modernity is, you know, a God, right? Not God, but like the emergence of a kind of new primitive deity that can reestablish basically a sense of enchantment and myth and so on. Obviously, I think Heidegger would be horrified by COVID. It's like the exact opposite in some sense of what he wants. But there is a kind of weird similarity, I think, in the sense that we're so disenchanted. It's like the only thing that we can believe in is this incredibly scientific sort of disenchanted biopolitical sort of process, if that makes sense, which is interesting in Fabio's discussion last week and also just broadly speaking, clearly what COVID is kind of engendering is a attempt to return to various limits, like the Green New Deal or um, stronger and sort of more totalitarian economic controls to prevent the economy from overheating and you know kind of pushing things too far. Um, and then also uh, you've discussed this a bit as well, but attempting to move, basically attempting to control the formation of crowds and control public life so that basically the kind of situations that might engender, violence that might engender scapegoating, which for example, might be directed against, you know, the powers and principalities, so to speak, uh, against governments, business leaders, et cetera, are all moved onto the internet, right? You, so I think that's kind of the broad trend that I see with, um, you know, kind of where the sort of COVID response is going, if that makes sense. And it's happening, as you said, all around the world, you know, I mean, it's the same types of discussions and, and things are being implemented. And I think there is something deeper going on, basically, that is, that's driving that. Yeah. And I mean, I think the globe, you know, the sort of global 
character of this entire phenomenon is is something that you know still seems like under underexplored and often just not um, not not given enough attention. Um, you know, and particularly by I think the sort of generally right leaning sort of COVID skeptic. Um, you know, realm in the US, which whose analysis I find extremely US centric, you know, to a fault. And um, the result is that, you know, the, the whole sort of lib pandemic idea, right? Um, you know, that's, <clears throat> that's kind of what I'm referring to here. Um, that really doesn't take into account the global scale of this whole phenomenon, right? And the way that totally um, the way that it, it, you know, obviously the thing that we're most exposed to is a certain sort of American liberal version of it. But, you know, there are governments of all sorts of ideological um, persuasions that have in various ways, I mean, often imposed, you know, far more draconian regimes than than anything here. So, you know, yes. I, I think, um, you know, one way to think about this might be that you know what we're reaching and and again you know that heideggerian um point is 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 crucial here i would say um you know often the context in which this is brought up was this idea that you know the only way the world could be united was against a common enemy right so aliens invade or you know these uh, movies where you have some asteroid or some you know you, oh, of course you, you yes. have this enacted in all of these movies right where you have an asteroid or, you know, an alien, it sort of doesn't really matter. It's the same thing. Um, the function of it is to create this kind of, um, to enable uh, um, uh, a sort of global um, unification against a common enemy, which, which again is this very Girardian kind of notion, right? Totally. And so, you know, I think we might think here also of like, um, you know, Peter Thiel, uh, who's, you know, probably Girard's best known student, um, you know, and his, his analysis of globalization, right? Because basically he thinks about globalization in terms of this notion of a sort of uncontained mimetic crisis because the driver of globalization is imitation, right? In other words, it has to do with, you know, essentially kind of the same memes spreading around the globe, um, and the, the risk of this, which the which meme theory doesn't account for, but mimetic theory does, is that this this creates this kind of universal competition, which brings about you know what Gerard calls a mimetic crisis, right? Um, which which is what you know the plague is sort of a figure of in in literature and myth, right? It yeah. it both occasions and results from these kinds of processes because these kinds of processes are what allow pathogens to spread. Um, but then the spread of the pathogen, you know, occasions these new, um, these new uh, potentialities of kind of universalized conflict. And so, so something has to be, um, you know, to, to prevent that kind of dissolution, um, something has to be, introduced mythically in order to to you know create some kind of unity right and so i think yes. the way i understand your argument is that sort of 
you know, COVID is, is arguably the first such thing on a global scale, right? Because, and it, it functions quite precisely as this, um, you know, it, it has all of these social effects, which can be, um, which, which clearly, you know, as you're arguing, um, it, it doesn't, it, it, it's not, you know, as you brought up before with, you know, there have been other global pandemics, which people barely even remember, right? Um, because they just simply were not responded to in the same way, right? There was, there was, I think, a kind of dress rehearsal on some level with some of them, but um, it, it, you know, we know that the pathogen itself does not directly cause this because we've seen similar things before where the same effects were not brought about. Oh yeah. And the, and oh, the, yeah. the, you know, and, and just infection fatality rate, you know, that, like that, that's not an adequate explanation, right? There's an underdetermination here. So there's something else going on. Um, there are all these social phenomena that are unleashed. And then on one hand, COVID can be um, in a sense made into the, the sort of mythic agent, um, you know, sort of external agents of all of these processes, as I understand your argument. And then what, what that ultimately allows is for it to become a kind of God, right? And that's, right. you know, again, the Heideggerian point, right? It, it becomes this, this kind of um, transcendent entity, right? That, that comes to determine everything, right? And that everything is organized around. And so the sense in which, you know, this is sort of a, a religious process is, is quite precise in this analysis, right? Because, because what it does is it allows for a kind of reordering and reorganization around the sort of appeasement of this transcendent entity. Oh yeah, that's absolutely but, right. And, yeah. and you see it, I think, quite clearly in just the ongoing... I mean, you know, we're, we're on the Omicron variant, right? I mean, that, that's another aspect of myth that I think is very interesting and one that, you know, unfortunately is functioning perhaps a little bit better than the unanimity uh, that is needed to make it really successful is the kind of paradoxical circularity of this whole thing, right? Which is where, you know, you have this initial moment with COVID, right, in, in basically in early 2020. And then what we're now we're just endlessly repeating the same essentially rights and you know practices uh, that we have before, which are all designed at essentially appeasing and sort of temporarily pushing out this, as you said, divine transcendent force, which represents basically all of these social problems and the potential for global apocalyptic, I mean, violence and, con and conflict, basically. Um, and it's just very interesting. Like if you look even in, uh, I was reminded of this, like in the unity of all right section, I think of, of violence in the sacred, Gerard actually talks about vaccination as a kind of right and boosters as a sort of, you know, it boosters as a sort of sacrificial right to the original moment of victimage, which is sort of represented by the first vaccination, right? It's a little bit of something evil to stave off something worse. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it's easy to miss, but I think kind of once you see it, you can really see the, the ritual aspect of all of this just playing out everywhere. 
Yeah. So I think that's right. That point about vaccination is, is a really fascinating one. And I've, I've been intending to write something about this. Um, so I'm glad you brought it up, but yeah. So there's this fascinating discussion in violence and the sacred of vaccination. Right. And he, he links it to, you know, and again, this is where this sort of, you know, he's very interested in this kind of pivot between science and, you know, these very, these, these various, you know, quote unquote, primitive phenomena that in, in many ways sort of preceded and anticipated its functioning. And I think as we're seeing now, kind of into which science can revert very easily, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and so, you know, the point about vaccination, as you say, is that, you know, this idea of scapegoat of, you know, the scapegoat function as a cure for social ills, right, is, is that the logic of it is that of, of vaccination, because essentially, the, the danger is violence, right? And so the basic premise of the sort of regulation of the sacred through sacrifice is that by kind of injecting a certain, um, you know, a certain, you know, critical amount of violence into the social order, you can kind of fend off the, the dangerous dissolving um, um, <clears throat> version of it, right? That, that, that we need to constantly guard against. And so, so basically the idea here is that the, the structure of, of, of sacrifice, of the, the sort of functioning of sacrifice is precisely that of vaccination, right? And that there's even a kind of, you know, there are various sort of etymological ways that we can trace this back. I mean, something else that, of course, um, Girard is very interested in. And, you know, he, even though he sort of had some issues with Derrida, you know, one text that where they, they have a, a great deal of kind of similarity is Derrida's text, uh, Plato's Pharmacy, right, where he addresses this phenomenon. I mean, first of all, this notion that, you know, that there's this, this kind of complex within Greek of, you know, <clears throat> the pharmacon as this term that can mean both, um, both poison and cure, right? So it's, it's this exact reversibility where the same thing that is the the poison also can become the cure um depending on the dosage essentially oh yeah and then of course this is also linked to closely etymologically linked to pharmacos which actually refers to the figure of the scapegoat you know who literally in ancient greek um society was sort of um ritually trotted out and um, effectively sacrificed, right? And so, so the, the the linkage between these different phenomena and you know is actually like inscribed in the language, right? And both oh yeah, for sure. Gerard and, and Derrida think about this, and so um, you know this sort of gets us to you know I, I think also just this whole odd. Um, you know, we've really never seen vaccination sort of assume the the function and status that it does today. Um, it's it's really quite remarkable, right? Because essentially, it's it's become this um, this way of demarcating the social, or, or at least that's what 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 there's an attempt to propose, right? That that essentially, if you you know, th those who are unvaccinated can be simply conceived of as outside of the social body, right? And they, 
you know, to use a kind of related um, framework, which is Agamben's, you know, homo soccer, right? They, they essentially become this kind of homo soccer figure, right? To whom anything can be done, right? Who, 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 who fall outside of the protections of the law in some sense, right? Definitely. Um, and so that's, you know, again, this kind of remarkable um, convergence with this whole set of themes that the Girard explores, um, where, you know, the, the function of, of vaccination is, is actually to create this kind of, um, this kind of regime of, of scapegoating where you, you, you produce this class of, or, or you attempt to produce this class of people who exist outside of the, you know, who, who, who are pushed to the outside, right? And who, who exist outside of the protections of the law. Yeah, yeah. And it, 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 there's a lot of really interesting, as you were saying, like it, 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 there's, there really is so much that's interesting about that. Because, you know, if you just take it on its face, the kind of current vaccination discourse makes, I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. I mean, I, I just, it does not make any sense. What, whatever your opinions are about the, the, you know, the, about the vaccines themselves, the way that we are treating it, I think, comes across to many people as incredibly irrational at the level of a kind of implementation of a medical technology. But as a social technology, there is a real logic to it, as you're pointing out, that it it, re- it kind of cuts a new line of difference, right, in society, which it, it kind of creates... Um, yeah, it's like just creating our own little pharmacon or whatever. We have these just endless class of people that can be blamed for things and can kind of serve as a way to uh, essentially reestablish that sort of attempt to reestablish a kind of functional cultural order among the vaccinated, right? And I mean, it, it is fascinating. It's just like the potential of the sort of endless boosters sort of ensures that this will never run out of these figures. We'll always have this kind of group to draw on. And uh, it really is very unfortunate. But again, like the broader social phenomena is actually not very new. It just appears, you know, cloaked in the guise of something that we're really not allowed to criticize. You know, you're not really allowed to criticize vaccination in modern society. And I'm not even saying that you necessarily should, just merely that that is a clear line that is drawn. And yeah, it's, it's, it really is a fascinating subject. And in, I mean, in many ways, also just a very, um, yeah, a very unfortunate, uh, a very unfortunate turn of events in many ways. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting, as you brought up before that, you know, in some sense that the logic of the booster is, is sort of that of the, the need for a sacrificial right in the sense that, you know, the, the sac- sacrifice function, you know, if, if the notion is that, you know, every community in, in Girard's account is kind of founded through some kind of collective act of, um, of scapegoating, right? So th- then the sort of commemoration of that act through sacrifice is a booster, right? It, yep. Oh yeah. And it, it, when you it, understand, it, oh, go ahead. No, no, it just, it, it, it kind of um, enables the, the sort of um, the renewal of the community through the kind of cyclical reenactment of that, of that right. primordial exclusion. Yes. And it's like, I mean, I think there's two interesting things to say about that, which is that one, 
right? I mean, connected to the idea how kind of myth doesn't work as well anymore, right? We, we kind of live in a somewhat self-negating culture in a variety of ways. And so the, the numerous boosters, you know, makes much more sense because the catharsis just doesn't last for very long. So you have to keep doing it over and over again, right? And the second thing is, I mean, it, to me, this, this formulation really explains some of the kind of urban liberal insanity around vaccination that has been widely mocked on social media. People like celebrating and getting stickers and like dressing up to get their vaccines. I mean, it's very, you know, it really is very ritualistic, you know, um, the, the way, the way they relate to it. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I, I think it also relates to this thing I've observed about how, you know, the, the vaccine is both constantly invoked as this, you know, this sort of um, ultimate shibboleth that decides kind of who's in and who's out. And yet th there's also, I mean, the thing that surprised me even early on was that the very people who were doing that were also extremely attuned to the vaccines, um, to, to, the, to its uh, weakness, right? Or to its, um, its fragility, right? That, you know, even before anyone was talking about boosters, you know, that there were all these people who were like, I mean, basically because they needed to reinforce the idea that you still shouldn't, you know, you still have to wear the mask and that, that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Fundamentally course. that, right? That, that the, the very people who had the most faith in it were also the ones who were certain that, you know, there, there were, you know, who were obsessively worried about breakthroughs immediately um, and who you know, were, were insistent that you still had to wear a mask. Um, even, you know, even when the CD, you know, there was that brief honeymoon when the CDC was sort of, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. And then I remember there were all these people who were, um, you know, sort of more hawkish than the CDC in that period. And there were some sort of very, you know, kind of affluent liberal municipalities that, you know, kind of, um, explicitly kept their mask mandates in place, even after the CDC said that, you know, you, you didn't need them anymore when you reached a certain level of vaccine yes. uptake. So, so, I mean, I think part of this would be that, you know, there, there's a, um, yeah. So there's an attunement to the, the fragility of this social technology, right. That it, that it, it, it doesn't work all on its own, right. It has to be, it has to be reinforced with this kind of whole suite of, Yes. Kind of ritualized yeah. interventions. And I think there is something very, something very reminiscent of the sacred in that, right? It's this wonderful gift that we all have to embrace and kind of constantly relive and so forth. And anyone that denies this gift, you know, we need to basically reject, right? And push to the edge because otherwise that's going to bring a lot of calamity. But on the other hand, it's this delicate, fragile thing that we have to kind of, you know, protect and so on. And yes, maybe there's some like side effects, but that's just a proof of how much it works. You know, it, it really is. It, yeah. I mean, it, it really, it, it really does make, it just makes so much more sense as a kind of a social technology than really in many ways, a medical technology. But unfortunately, again, it, you know, it, it, none of these things really, I think, achieve what the goal of their proponents kind of is like they're not we're never actually able to reach a point where we unanimously agree that this is good you know what i'm saying that and we're able to kind of create a new functional system of unified difference like a new order like we're just trapped in this kind of 
cycle of recriminations and scandal and, and so on. And, you know, most of the proponents of it seem to believe, like your example, the people who think we need to keep masking, you know, even though everyone's vaccinated or whatever, it's like, they think that in order to stop the sort of cycle that we're in, we have to just keep doing it, right? And it's somehow it'll just end of its own accord, which really, I mean, it's just, it's, it, it's just so ironic because that is precisely why it never ends. It's because we just think that we have to keep doing all the things that create it. We don't, we just don't fundamentally see that we're the ones that are doing all of this, right? That, that it's something in some sense that by going along with it, you know, we all are playing a role in creating this horrible phenomena, basically. And of course, some people resist much more than others. But, you know, in my sense, the average person does kind of pay lip service to these rights, even if they don't really believe in them. Yeah. And I mean, I think this um, this speaks to the way that this, you know, again, this myth, as you're describing it, has just sort of um, captured the imagination of of, you know, I mean, regardless of how we respond to it and think about it, it's, it's, you know, serve this kind of bizarre unifying function again, in the way that, you know, countries of entirely different socioeconomic and political descriptions have all kind of come together around this, the, the set of kind of ritualized behaviors and processes. And so, you know, this, I I just think people, you know, again, this goes back to how I think people's um, response is often too narrow because they're looking at on the purely national level. Um, You know, there there are like sub-Saharan African countries that, you know, it's it's probably extremely hard to tell, you know, that that seem to have been, um, it's, it's quite fascinating to look at the numbers on the the sort of um, maps they show, you know, where it looks like the the impact is very low, but then you also have to imagine that the levels of disease surveillance are extremely minimal there. And also that, you know, that, that there, there are so many other infectious diseases in circulation that are not in circulation here that, you know, it's, it's, it's probably a complete crapshoot. But, you know, the point here is that you know, it's there are these sub-Saharan African countries where there are like mask mandates and stuff, right? I mean, this is this is remarkable um, stuff, right? These are these are countries where people have been confronting far more severe diseases. Um, oh yes, constantly yeah. for for decades, um, and nevertheless, they've kind of come around, you know, come around to this set of. Um, set of weird practices that have just kind of been, you know, introduced and, you know, continue to be followed in lockstep by, you know, countries around much of the world. I mean, I think it's, it's, you know, another thing that I think is underestimated is just how, how strange all of these new things are that, you know, all of these governments do. Um, Oh, yeah. And how new they are as well, and and how and the degree to which many of them were actually explicitly um, disavowed by, you know, most of the major public health authorities in the world, like two years ago. Um, almost all of the this whole suite of interventions, you know, were um, either explicitly not recommended or at least regarded as you know maybe okay in sort of outlier cases. So, yeah, you know, th- this, um, you know, a- again, this, 
um, makes very little sense on a scientific level. And I, and I think, you know, something I've been kind of insistent about is just how, how little, I mean, in my, my episode with, um, you know, my, my, uh, medical native informants address this, but you know, how, how little interest there is in actually studying any of this is remarkable, right? There, there's, I think there's actually a desire to suppress and prevent any, any actual um any actual serious uh randomized control trials of any of these interventions like it yeah yeah like the fact that there are so few does not seem to be a coincidence no um, i mean so, i think yeah it's like if you understand that the incentive of like a scientist right is to publish and they clearly you know, the, these interventions are in favor amongst the people who might publish your paper. Like if it works so well, we, we would see we'd be an endless stream of randomized controlled, you know, trials on masks or, or whatever the case, the case may be. Yeah. So I, I, I'm in complete agreement. And I think that perhaps depending on how you want to look at it, but either way, it's like, if you were to look into these things too much, you would risk kind of demystifying them, right? You would, you would risk, you know, creating too much of a separation between, as you were saying, the confusion of the biological agent and the kind of underlying social crisis. And so, I mean, I think there are various versions of this, you know, Fabio's is one, I think a more sort of conventional one is maybe Adam II's. Um, But, you know, there's some kind of sense that in various ways, leading up to 2020, we had reached this series of kind of global impasses. And, um, you know, I think this, this sort of manifested itself, manifested itself on all sorts of different levels, right? But, you know, one way to think about it would just be that, you know, there's this kind of project of globalization that begins particularly after the fall of the Soviet Union. And, you know, again, Teal is sort of interesting in noting that this is essentially a kind of um, necessarily a kind of generator of mimetic crisis because it um, it it creates global undifferentiation through kind of unrestrained imitation and competition, right? And so there are yeah. all sorts of ways we could we could think about this, but you know, I I think generally one way to think about this and we can approach it from an economic point of view, a cultural point of view, a political point of view, et cetera. But um, it, it really, uh, I think one way to, one way to understand this is just, it's the culmination of this whole interlocking set of crises that kind of result from these past several decades of globalization and which I think that the initial kind of crisis response to appeared to be the kind of rise of, of populism around 2016. But in many ways, I would say this, this has dwarfed, you know, as a, as a kind of strange, you know, sort of autoimmune reaction to that series of processes on a global scale. You know, I, I think what we're seeing now actually makes the sort of populist challenge, you know, sort of nationalist populist challenges of five years ago seem relatively insignificant in comparison. Oh, definitely. And I think there's a lot here in terms of the economic explanation with the cent- central banks and so on, preventing that kind of a, a crisis. I mean, 
there's a lot of, I think I, I view these explanations as being very complementary to each other, right? It's like, if you look at like some of Gerard's colleagues um, who were more interested in economics and in Gerard himself does write about this a little bit, uh, if I recall that, you know, the, the market really is, has been a force, right. That has been stabilizing precisely what you just described, right. Like that, we're creating massive amounts of undifferentiation, homogenization, et cetera, via the kind of expansion of global capitalism or neoliberalism, however you want to call it. But there's just like ways in which that's not functioning as well anymore. And so now, as you're saying now, this kind of new figure of COVID is entering the scene to, in some sense, tie together all, all these threads and attempt to resolve them. But of course, in that attempt, I mean, we have arguably you know, created something really much worse. Right. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think this whole process is, um, you know, I, I, I do think of it also as a, you know, and, and I'm glad you brought up the Heidegger point, but, but also just as a response to the fact that, you know, and, and again, I think Fabio offers a sort of economic um, analysis of this, but you know, that, that, as, as a sort of global society, we had sort of arrived at various dead ends, right? And so there, you know, there, there are various ways we can think about this, but, um, you know, on one hand, the whole project of kind of neoliberal globalization had arrived at a dead end, but at the same time, it's, um, it, it's, its challengers also seemed um, in many ways incapable of presenting alternatives or, or offering challenges to it. Absolutely. And so, you know, it, 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 again, it's, it's this kind of series of conflicting impasses, right. That, um, you know, I, I, like one of the ones that I've found kind of interesting is like this, um, you know, like one of the accounts I've kind of been <laughs> trolling a bit recently is like this guy, Aaron Bastani, right. Who's, one of these, you know, he's like a British leftist and he, oh you know, boy. he wrote this book called, um, um, fully automated luxury communism. And so it's, it was kind of this, um, you know, again, this attempt to, you know, it, it did all sorts of things, right. It was, it was sort of this, an attempt to sell, you know, the left as the, the, the um, the the sort of um force that was advocating for true abundance and the sort of true unleashing of technological um of 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 technological um innovations that would sort of improve life for everyone and so on and that this would also a sort of counteract this would also sort of you know be the ultimate counteraction of sort of um neoliberal austerity right but now he's himself a sort of hardcore lock, you know, sort of lockdown proponent. And um, so, you know, it, it's, it's interesting to see that these people who claim to be proposing these kind of radical alternative projects have largely gotten on board with this other radical alternative project, which, yes. you know, essentially um, is, is useful in that it, it sort of, it, it doesn't have to, I mean, th there are various ways that it's just a kind of ideal political project because it doesn't have to actually work. Like it doesn't actually have to actually like deliver the things that it claims to be delivering even because 
as you and I have both talked about, you know, part of what part of how it works is by cordoning off these groups who can be blamed for any failures. So right. So basically, it's this it's this perfect political project because it doesn't actually have to achieve anything. Um, it, it can never fail because its failings are always offloaded onto the scapegoats who, you know, don't follow its strictures and commandments, um, you know, closely enough. Yeah, so it's, I, a, it's it's a yeah. perfect political project in that sense, right? Because you know, if if we look at the other projects, we have you know various failures to deliver, right? We have the failure of the sort of global capitalist regime to sort of deliver consistent um, prosperity and a sort of rising tide that would lift all boats, as it promised. And then we have these various um, you know counter forces from the left and right that that challenge that, but you know, we're also incapable of, of delivering on what they promised, right? And oh, so yeah. the, per- the perfect thing about COVID politics, precisely because it has this kind of fundamentally mythic form, is that it, it can never fail, right? It's, it's, it, it's, um, it, it, it's efficacy will ne- is never evaluated because its efficacy is, is kind of the pure force is, is measured by the pure force of its sort of moral purity. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it is an infinitely, I mean, it, 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 you know, as a kind of mythic system, right. It's infinitely self-justifying. Right. And to your, to use a, a phrase, I think, um, you, uh, the title of one of your articles, right. The, the new scapegoating machine. I mean, you can very much think about COVID, you know, precisely kind of in those terms um, as just a kind of persecutorial kind of engine that succeeds precisely because it never succeeds, right? It never actually has to, never has to deliver anything. And um, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think um, the only other brief point I would want to make about that with your, your um, the point you mentioning this kind of British leftist is I think that in some ways the left has very eagerly bandwagon onto this precisely because they're, you could say some of the rationalists are like this too, but they're precisely the groups that view themselves to have most transcended the impulse to persecute. And so they're the perfect people to then kind of implement uh, this new system. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think, um, it's important to, you know, and, and this also goes back to your thread, but, you know, y- you also discussed this whole question of sort of centralized versus decentralized conspiracy. So, oh, yeah, I think that's words, very I interesting. Think, so I think um, a, lo- a lot of, and we're, we're sort of getting, getting towards this point already, but, you know, obviously a lot of the kind of um, COVID skeptical world is, is sort of easily accused of, taking a conspiratorial position that there's sort of a, you know, whether it's the World Economic Forum or Correct. Bill Gates or whatever, there's a kind of um, single agency behind this process that um, that has, you know, uh, brought, that has, has sort of brought it upon us. Um, and then, you know, at the beginning of your thread, you kind of cite some debates within, you know, various of these accounts that are trying to uh, make sense of what's been going on as, as sort of a conflict between a centralized and decentralized position. 
Correct. Um, so maybe you could explain some of the background of that debate, but also, you know, how kind of what we've been discussing offers a certain, I think, version of the, the decentralized um, analysis. Yeah. So the debate is really, I mean, there's a lot of agreements in all these positions, of course, but I think what it comes down to is this issue really of causality, right? Like, I don't think anyone really at this point thinks Bill Gates is like a good guy who's like working to save humanity. But, you know, there's a real question of, is he actually personally responsible for this? Like, in other words, if we just got rid of him, would this all go away? Which is a perfect little micro scapegoating phenomena example. But yeah, so I would say the debate is kind of on the one hand, people who see what's occurring as being the function of an organized, possibly a kind of network, but still organized kind of group of global actors who have various objectives, like economic objectives, political objectives, and so on, who are essentially using their influence in finance, in media, in the public health sectors, et cetera, to push the COVID crisis. On the other hand, you have a position that concedes there may be bad actors, right? But views the causality more as a kind of like, as I think I said, kind of a bureaucratic kind of lynch mob. That there's essentially, that the, that the institutions themselves are just out of control, basically. And they have mobilized themselves in a kind of mass formation at, with, with the, really to us, like a totally nonsensical goal of like total containment of an already endemic respiratory virus using methods that we all know now don't work. And so I really think that the entire debate turns on that discrepancy of like, we all kind of know that this is what we know that this goal of eliminating COVID or containing COVID is the explicit goal of our government at this point, uh, Western governments at least. And we also know pretty much that everything they say to do to eliminate COVID will not in fact eliminate COVID. And so how do you account for that? And the, 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 conspir- the centralized position, I would say, accounts for it very easily, just simply by saying that the goal of the you know, transcendent political class basically is not the same as the explicit goal of the public health authorities. And, and I think what this discussion allows us to do is to perhaps better understand how a decentralized position might function. Because I agree with the, with the, um, the centralized side. I mean, I agree with them about just a lot of core facts to be quite honest. And, I, and I'm, but I also agree with them further that it's just, this can't really just be about a biological agent. Like that's just, a, a virus alone is not enough to stimulate the hysteria that we've seen, given how little empirical experience anyone really has with like hundreds of people dying. It's, I mean, it's just there isn't any lived experience there to, to drive that. So I think what this theory does is allow us to kind of see that, I mean, in some sense, the human community itself can be understood as a kind of actor, or perhaps like similar to the way that Marx or something saw you know, class struggle or different kind of classes as being the forces that, that drive um, history. And because to your point, we have a kind of global community now, I think there's a way in which regardless of, regardless of the existence of the centralized element, in my mind, 
the existence of a centralized element may be necessary for this, but it's not sufficient. And the decentralized position is kind of able to, I think, better account for the specifics of why this is occurring right now. Because if you were to just say, oh, there's a bunch of greedy people who want to enslave everyone, I mean, that's pretty much a historical constant in my view. That doesn't explain why it would have occurred at this precise moment, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, I think um, it's it's true that we can find all sorts of sort of documentation that there are, I mean, and this goes back to a theme that's, you know, been discussed heavily at many, many points in this process, which is that, you know, what we've seen is really a sort of accentuation of, of ongoing trend. I mean, if you look at what the overall effects of this process have been, you know, none of them are entirely sui generis, right? There's sort of, there tends to be a kind of acceleration and accentuation of certain ongoing trends that, um, you know, were already in evidence before any of this happened, right? And so, you know, that's part of why um, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to see this in a sense as a kind of, um, you know, it, it provides, you um, and the, and the sort of, inf, you know, threat inflation around it provides a pretext for certain processes to be accelerated would be would be one way to think about it. Um, sure. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that's kind of, you know, more or less what, you know, Fabio was arguing in this, um, you know, it, 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 it provides a kind of temporary way out of certain um you know, sort of monetary and financial deadlocks. Um, it's it's not a particularly, I mean, and, and I think the way in which his account isn't, I mean, even though it does assign a significant agency to particularly central bankers, um, you know, it's not, um, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't really posit an, an overall grand plan so much as a kind of, um, a kind of temporary um, kind of, fending off, of, I mean, and this relates to everything we've been discussing, right? A, a temporary yeah, exactly. kind of fending off of certain crises that, you know, were threatening to come to a head and that can be, be kind of delayed um, through some of these processes. But, but how long that will actually work is, is still uncertain. And then the other thing that's happening is something that, you know, was already happening, right? Which is um, that, you know, they're, they're, I mean, for example, just for example, um, in the realm of education, right, like 10 years ago, there was a huge push to push as much education online as possible, right? Like that was, um, you know, you, the Obama administration was holding, um, was holding conferences about it, you know, um, there were, uh, you know, numerous um, articles, like, you know, New York Times op-eds advocating this, right? So this was already a kind of thing that various kind of elite um, actors uh, wanted to see happen, right? Um, and, you know, so this is kind of a simple and localized example of just, this is a process that was already underway and that, you know, various people saw as inevitable, who have influence kind of saw as inevitable. And so, you know, it, it's an example of something that um, could be helpfully pushed forward by a, a sort of pre-existing elite agenda, which wasn't, you know, wasn't universal or unanimous or being, and it wasn't being pushed by some secret, 
you know, behind closed doors, um, you know, sort of smoke filled rooms. It was, it was actually explicitly advocated by all sorts of people. And, yeah, and yeah. so it, it's, it's an example of just the kind of thing where a certain set of interests will take the opportunity offered by a situation like this and be able to push forward certain things that they were already trying to do anyway. Correct. Um, and yeah, uh, there's an interesting in, I think it's in the book Conversations with Rene Girard. He actually kind of vaguely addresses this point. It's like in one of the discussions at the very beginning with the question of like in, you know, certain kinds of um, basically about the question of agent provocateurs, right? Like how much weight should we give the idea to the idea that human communities are driven by the specific kind of political objectives of their managers, basically. Um, and, and, you know, how, how much can managers sort of control the social forces of humanity? And I just think well, something I would want to caution people who are, um, who want to ascribe all causality, as you said, to kind of like the decisions behind closed doors or, or whatever, is like, yeah, not only is it kind of open, but it's just also not clear to me that that level of, that that level of permanent long lasting sort of control that we can really grasp a hold of human society like that is really possible. And I think to believe that also is kind of demoralizing, to be honest. And so I do think there's something about this account which kind of allows us to navigate between these, you know, kind of navigate between these positions, if that makes sense, depending on, um, you know, the individual person's like feeling about it. Yeah, right. And it, you know, it allows us to grasp it as a kind of emergent process. And, you know, what the what the Girardian, um, you know, and, and I, you, you mentioned um, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, who's, you know, in my view, one of the most interesting sort of Girardians out there um, in your thread. And, you know, I think his reading of Girard is, is cybernetic in the sense that he understands Girard as kind of a systems thinker, right? And that means that he's interested in identifying kind of emergent processes that are not driven by any individual, you know, agents who kind of impose something on the larger collective, but rather in um, these processes that, that take hold as a consequence of the kind of systemic structures of the social order, right? Correct. That, that these, yeah. And that, you know, as we've been saying all along, um, there are many ways this process, even though it's it's novel in certain senses, it it simply reactivates um, these fundamental structures that have always existed, um, and that you know we can understand this process as as precisely that kind of emergent phenomenon that is the effect of the interaction of different parts of the system. Oh yeah, for sure, and I would say that. The, ex the, the extent to which, right, there is a kind of, you know, um, centralized force, which you might say a kind of accuser, right, and that, that sort of sets the, sets the mob in motion, is that really, I would say I view it that, like, that empirically may or may not exist, but if it does exist, that action of kind of getting the ball rolling, for example, as it did with, with COVID, um, as sort of occurred with COVID, is it's better understood as incarnating the forces of the system itself rather than some 
plan that autonomously arose in the mind of like a specific individual or group of individuals. Yeah. And this, you know, I, I think an, another thing that's that often seems under discussed to me is the kind of elements of mimetic contagion that, you know, again, as I said, there was this kind of sudden embrace of, of all of these non-pharmaceutical interventions that were, you know, many of which were kind of regarded very skeptically by public health authorities and, you know, documents that we can find published yes. not long before any of this happened, right? And so, you know, there was this kind of domino effect by which, um, you know, that there were, uh, by which these were embraced um, in clearly a kind of panicked mode, um, you know, by one government after the other. Oh yeah, and, absolutely. Um, and, and there was this kind of inversion where, you know, the, the suddenly, people who are advocating the exact things that were sort of the consensus approach uh, just a few months before were suddenly, I mean, and this is where the spirit of accusation that sort of comes into it. We're suddenly accused of being murderers of, of yes. you know, wanting to, um, you know, of being like, you know, responsible for genocide or things like that. Right. And yeah. And, yeah. And I mean, I guess, you know, the, so the spirit of accusation, right, Gerard identifies with the, the principle of the sort of satanic, right, the, the satanic accuser is the, is the figure who kind of initiates this process of, of persecution. Um, so one interesting, I mean, a few interesting things in, in, in the early months of all of this. On one hand, you know, one of the sort of primary accusations was, you know, basically that you know, you have to fall in line with these new measures or else you're a murderer, right? Or else you're, you're essentially, you're literally killing people and so on. Um, and then the other one that was kind of interesting was, um, you know, the way that early on, I mean, we had, you know, on one hand, we had this like fear of persecution, basically of, of Asians, right? at least in yes. the US, right? So, and that did in fact occur, right? There were there were such incidents. Um, the way they've been represented is, you know, often extremely misleading, <clears throat> but nevertheless, like they did actually occur, right? And this, you know, again, is um, part and parcel of the various phenomena that Girard observes, right? As soon as you have a plague, you have the, the sort of spontaneous attempts to, um, to find scapegoats who can be blamed for it, right? And so, but but one thing we saw was that our sort of cultural system, as Gerard would note, is so cognizant of the dangers of scapegoating that it, you know, its immediate response was actually, um, there was greater worry about, in, in the initial months, what was interesting is there, were, there was actually greater worry about the scapegoat effect taking hold than there was about the virus itself, right? Before there was kind of that odd, um, switcheroo that happened in around March of 2020. Um, the sort of, you know, the, the sort of PMC liberal side of thing was to be, um, to be kind of scornful of people who were too worried about the virus, but also to fear that worry of the virus would lead to scapegoating, right? Right. But then the irony of that is that, um, okay, you did have the real um, fact of there being some incidents 
um, of of scapegoating of of Asians in the U.S. Right, that did happen, but but then sort of under the guise of this worry about scapegoating, you have the, the emergence of this other accusatory principle, right? Which is the sort of quintessential modern one, which is that the accusation takes the form of accusing someone else of scapegoating, right? Totally. And so so w- what happened initially was that you had um, this idea that worrying about the virus was, I mean, in fact, worrying about the virus was itself supposed to be racist for a little while, right? And so the principle there was basically that um, the real danger is not the virus. The real danger is this kind of um, social effect that it will, or the fear of it will unleash. And yet the, the people who were saying that were themselves kind of illustrating it in their own behavior, right? Because what they were doing already there was basically, um, identifying the enemy um, which in the initial form was this idea of the kind of, you know, MAGA um, extremist who, you know, was at that time regarded as overly worried about the virus, but their worry was a symptom of their racism. Right. And then, so this is basically the same figure who then eventually morphs into the unvaccinated sort of vector of danger. Right. But, but this is how they're initially figured, I think. Oh yeah. Um, And so what, what's interesting is that, you know, the the accusatory principle, it's, it's a weird um, sort of carnival mirror effect where, where the actual, um, the accusatory principle is to accuse another of being the accuser in some sense. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite interesting, and you really see that. I mean, that, that's that is truly an amazing example because it happened so rapidly. I mean, it was within less than three months we had gone from you know the racist MAGA chuds who want to scapegoat Asians and are worried about COVID to you know scapegoating people that don't want to wear a mask and won't lock down and and so on. But it's a great example of how you know, the, it's a systems logic, right? Like the, the, the accusation is attempting to serve some kind of systemic function, right? But as you said, we're so aware of the dangers of that function that the function no longer works and yet we continue to do it. And it's also just incredibly ironic, I would say too, thinking about um, your observation that, you know, the pe- it's, as always, like the, it's the people that most believe themselves to be have transcended the scapegoat principle that actually establishes their continuity with past scapegoating and past persecution, right? And that I really do see kind of just in the media environment and so on today, it's like you have people, the kind of PMC liberal left who believe they've transcended persecution via their moral purity on the one hand. And then you have the kind of intellectual dark web, new atheists kind of thing where they believe they've, yeah, it's a little more right wing, but they believe they've transcended persecution due to their rationality, right? But the problem is that if you understand Gerard, right, these things kind of emanate from this primitive sacred, which in some sense encompasses technology, religion, good, bad, all kind of blend together. And so there really is no way to sort of extricate yourself from it unless you're willing to kind of set your own enemies aside, if that makes sense. And you know, people just generally aren't really willing to do that yet. Yeah. 
I think, you know, part of what we're getting at there is this kind of um, this sort of mercurial in a literal sense quality of both of both the virus itself. Um, and, you know, I think this is part of what lends it its, its power, but, but also to the, the sort of various responses to it, right. That, um, it's, you know, what we're looking at is these, these kind of shape shifters, right. Um, and so this, I think is linked to, um, to its divinity, right? The the pagan god is often a kind of shapeshifter, right? Um, so, and then, you know, for Girard, this fundamentally has to do with the way that, you know, the the, the basic the the basic principle of of violence and its sort of social dangers is that it can constantly assume new forms, right? Um, and so. You know, this is kind of interesting going back to what you said before in relation to like the, the, um, the, I mean, it's, it's interesting in relation to the, the kind of, you know, complete inconsistency over time of, of like people's specific responses to it, but, but the, the sort of, um, the way that the, the, the sort of same social effects could be achieved in a sense by adopting completely opposite positions, right? Um, that that there's this kind of um, this kind of constant process of transformation and shape shifting, right? Totally. And then, yeah. And then that's mirrored by the you know the the way that the virus, um, you know, not I mean, mutation is a real process, but you know the the way that it's kind of culturally figured, especially now, is kind of central to the virus's functioning, right? Um, you know, it's, I, I, there was a weird article yesterday. I was like kind of amused by about like, you know, what, what are the symptoms of Omicron? Like what are the specific symptoms of Omicron? And like, you know, it turns out they don't really know, but you know, they're sort of just making shit up. But basically one of the weird statements in it was something to the effect of like, you know, overall the symptoms seem to be mild, but you know, mild illness can still have a serious impact or something like that. So, so this idea that, um, that, you know, the sort of virulence of the virus can be disguised by its mildness, right? That, that sort of, again, it's this, this constant shape-shifting quality, right? Where in a sense, mildness itself becomes a new form, a new manifestation of its danger um, that, um, <laughs> And then, you know, the other interesting thing that's been, I think like the, you know, the long COVID, the specter of long COVID is another sort of interesting uh, phenomenon to observe. Because as far as, as far as I've noticed, it seems to, I mean, obviously it's always kind of bubbling under the surface, but it, it, it kind of comes to prominence at moments when people are worried that um, the sort of pretext provided by the virus is coming to seem insufficient right so this other this kind of other form of it needs to be summoned up in order to reinforce its kind of divine potency uh, yeah, absolutely yeah it's like i mean it's, it's really it's such a similar logic to the it's it's dangerous because it's more mild you know the mildness is the new iteration of the danger the long COVID is such a it's similar, just really farcical logic of, uh, 
yeah, well, it's like everyone survives, but then maybe it go the contagion stays with you forever. And so we have to be so careful about, you know, about this. And I will note that, you know, in my investigation of long COVID, it also, the treatments often just tend to involve basically more ritual that, you know, taking certain, you know, supplements or certain types of practices that people do to like manage their, manage their symptoms, right? I mean, it really is, you know, kind of an extension, you know, just an extension of the same phenomena, but I mean, also just obviously hilariously sort of, um, I mean, again, the, the logic is really not a medical logic, right? It's, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of ritual logic basically that has definitely has a significant hold, you know, on, um, on some percentage of the population at this point, they're really kind of addicted to what the virus is doing for, um, not just for them, maybe, but just kind of for the community as a whole, and they want to continue it. And I guess, for me, like the importance of this is just realizing that there's so many very bright people who are kind of combating these phenomena that we're describing on purely medical or scientific grounds. But in my view, I mean, we need to do that, right? Like people that just, I view myself as a COVID skeptic, dissident, whatever. That's very important, but that's never going to sort of close the issue because the real issue is, you know, um, really as Gerard talks about that the plague is a metaphor for another type of danger that kind of lurks beneath it. And we're basically just sort of unable to really address that aspect of it. And the more we engage in this kind of um, discourse, you could say, the COVID moderates and so on, even though they may oppose the most extreme measures, they do in some sense reinforce the just overall sense of mystification, right? That this is a, you know, the, some degree of biopolitical management and biopolitical ritual is necessitated by the presence of this profane agent in our communities, it has to kind of be exercised, you know, but we never really exercise it. And um, I, I just, I think it's worth thinking about those types of issues in, in kind of in greater detail because it provides, I think an alternate alternate path to addressing this that is not like, you know, essentially either another form of scapegoating, right? Or this kind of feudal in some sense uh, just kind of endless circular debate about the abstract scientific kind of specifics of each new variant. Yeah, and that, I mean, I think this is also related to why, um, you know, if we want to look at who the, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily sort of political conservatives who were, you know, initially, like, I think there are various ways that, you know, um, I, I mean, I don't particularly trust Republicans to be any better on any of the shit in the long run than, even though it's the Democrats who have done the 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 bulk of the harm. I, I don't, um, you know, I, I'm I'm highly skeptical of. I mean, I, I think yeah, sure, um, probably in bl in blue states where we're kind of being subjected to this indefinite madness, like probably a bunch of those people losing elections in 2022 is in the immediate term, um, you know, maybe going to make things a bit better, but, um, you know, in the long run, I, I don't think, um, you know, I, I think plenty of Republicans would, 
at least in principle, be just as happy to uh, to embrace this stuff as as anybody else. And again, if we look at the international panorama, we have plenty of right wing governments that have that have been worse even than the <clears throat> the most extreme Democrats here. Sure. So, but anyway, that, but what I did notice early on, you know, even before the battle lines were really drawn, was that actually it was. I think quite religious people who were maybe the most COVID skeptical early on and, you know, particularly like cat, like sort of conservative Catholics and, you know, make of that what we will. But um, I think it does suggest, you know, I would argue that the possible explanation of that is that they were better equipped to recognize this as a kind of, uh, a new um, iteration of the sacred and from their perspective, a kind of false sacred. Um, yeah. And so th- yeah. they were better able to recognize it in part because it was closer to what is already organizing their lives. Right. And in, in other Absolutely. words, uh, other people did not, you know, they, they were, and, and the people who embraced this were not capable of seeing this at all. Right. Um, and, and that's partly because they are so, secularized right that that they're um they they're they they kind of fell backwards into this universe of the sort of primitive sacred in part because it's it already seems so distant from them that they they couldn't conceive of what that would look like whereas i think certain kind of traditional catholics were often the most astute at seeing what this meant which was a kind of so, total social reorganization of life around a new kind of, again, iteration of the sacred, which it, which from their perspective would be a, a sort of false, subs, you know, maybe satanic substitute. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. On that point, it's interesting, you know, if you, the division in the United States, at least, is very much kind of a north-south, right? Where generally the farther you kind of go north, the more intense this kind of, you know, sacred realignment, you know, with COVID, whatever is, you get farther south, there's much less of it. And it's just interesting because I think Gerard at some point, you know, mentions that in, in a way, the, the sort of northern cities are more Christian in their attitude, but much less Christian in their kind of ritual construction of social life. And so I think that sort of the, the kind of um, I mean, he would probably say like victimology or, or victimism of a kind of post-Christian concern for the victim, but without any of the forgiveness, mercy, and kind of, you know, Christian ritual, essentially, to kind of provide a sort of substitute, really left a lot of these urban liberal areas, as you say, just incredibly vulnerable to it. You know, they just, they just didn't see it, and I think in many senses still cannot see it. For, for what it is, whereas, you know, yeah, in some sense, um, and also there's just less competing rituals, I think, honestly, like there's just the culture in general was more de-ritualized. That's a little bit of a hard argument to make, but I, I still kind of intuitively think that it's true. And thus it really opens the door for things like putting on a mask when you get up from a, re- you know, from a table at a restaurant, right? It, that I think just is inherently catchier per your point in that kind of an environment. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, it's also been interesting to see them attempt to, you know, again, going back to that early moment where, you know, among this approximate demographic, there was sort of this, you know, the biggest worry was 
the risk of scapegoating rather than the risk of the virus itself. But what that also meant was that the, the form of the first accusation, right, that awakened this kind of bureaucratic lynch mob, as you describe it, is it was is the accusation of scapegoating on the part of this this sort of demonic other who, you know, is going to um, is going to scapegoat is going to scapegoat the other for the virus. Um, but then what you have is this kind of desperate search for victims. And, you know, that's culminated in this strange situation we have now where, according to their own worldview, the, the victims of the virus are the unvaccinated, right? And so on one hand, they have to, um, on one hand, they have to kind of treat that as deserved, right? And sort of say, oh, it's fine to like deny them medical care and things like that, right? Um, but on the other hand, they have to, um, they still have to summon up victims who can be, um, I, I mean, so they have to say on one hand that um, like they, you know, they, they have to have their own scapegoat, right? Who's the unvaccinated. Um, but unfortunately that, that risks, um, also jeopardizing their whole kind of ritualized system because if the, if the most vulnerable are now the unvaccinated, then how do you justify continuing this whole ritual regime to protect the very people who you're saying actually deserve their victim, who deserve to fall victim to the virus? Well, <laughs> yes. so, so on one hand, you have this weird... Um, this weird kind of back and forth where you're trying to justify the continuation of restrictions, even though according to your own worldview, the, the people who you're saving are the very people you think actually should be, um, you know, should be harmed at this point. Right. So you're, right. so then, so you have this weird cognitive dissonance on that level. And then I think you have this increasingly desperate attempt to summon up, you know, potential victims who, like, you see a lot of people talking about the third world and, you know, how the, the real problem is that we're denying vaccines to the, you know, to the developing world. And again, the logic doesn't, I mean, and that doesn't really make sense as to why, you know, that justifies like continued mask mandates in your own city, but it, it at least yep. kind of summons up some sort of, I mean, it allows the kind of cult to still be oriented around some sense of a vulnerable victim who has to be protected, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and, yeah. and then, and then you have basically long COVID. You know, there's just this desperate attempt to summon up victims, right? You have long COVID. You have um, the the immunocompromised. Yeah. Oh, God. You know, which which I mean, like, I actually am immunocompromised, so I just find this such a weird thing to be like when when I see people demand like or arguing with me about why these restrictions are still necessary. And it's like, you know, that, that's become an entirely abstract category to, to these oh, people. Yeah. So it's Absolutely. like, it, but you know, so it, it's, it's again, the, the whole thing needs to be propped up both by a scapegoat, but also by a victim who needs to be protected from the evil, um, you know, depravity of the scapegoat. Right. Absolutely. And it, you are, I mean, I, I strongly agree that it has led to these just insane kind of, contor kind of contortions where 
yeah, like the, where it's like we have to, you know, we have to vaccinate the unvaccinated to protect the vaccinated, you know, I mean, it just like, uh, because it's so nonsensical and yet there is a kind of still desire to express it in some degree within the framework of reason. And so you, it leads to these really numerous kind of contradictory positions and just a, generally, like, as you, as you kind of said, you sort of substitute almost like one really believable solid victim for this kind of insane like proliferation of different victims who like no one kind of who our belief in these victims is sort of somewhat suspect but there's just kind of always another one you can cycle through um and yeah it's it's quite remarkable i mean a particular i mean irony i remember was when there were some uh black people that were denied access at a restaurant in new york because they didn't have a vaccine card and that led to this kind of hilarious to me, you know, right wing BLM, like anti-vaccine mandate alliance, which in my view is so indicative of this kind of scandalized environment of the basically of the sacrificial crisis, right, where all of the old boundary lines of politics really just don't make a lot of sense anymore, right? Like, I don't know what it's like in New York, but in Chicago, where I am, I mean, the majority of unvaccinated people are Latino or, or African-American, right? Who are supposedly on the other side of some of these liberal issues, the kind of ultimate victims we have to protect from, you know, white privilege and racism and all of these kind of oppressive structures. But then in this other area, they're actually the ones being victimized, right? And it really, I mean, it really just doesn't make any sense. And I think that the fact that it doesn't make any sense causes a lot of people to kind of just shut the whole thing off, right? And just kind of stop thinking about it, which in some sense helps drive the whole process forward. I think it can be very valuable to understand that sort of like the only way for this to make sense is to understand the significance of the fact that it doesn't make any sense, that essentially all of our differential systems have totally broken down. It's not clear who's winning, who's losing, who's causing it, who's the victim, who's the scapegoat. It's just, it's chaos, right? And we have really yet sort of resolved that problem. Like we have not really been able to introduce like a new sense-making procedure. And I, I'm sadly, I don't see one coming in the immediate future, although I obviously would love to be wrong. Yeah, I think that... Um you know, gets it also another point that, you know, it's, it's very tempting for people of your and my sensibility to just kind of be pointing out these contradictions and things like that. But, you know, the reality is that the cognitive dissonance is not, um, is not like what undoes the whole system. In fact, it's part of what reinforces it, right? That, that there's a, that, that kind of um, kernel, that kind of kernel of irrationality um, is actually part of what sustains it. And I think that that's important to, and, you know, I think we're, we're familiar with this in, I guess, you know, some accounts of religion, right. That like, you know, part of what it means to be committed to it is to kind of accept, uh, I don't know, something like the Trinity, right. Where there, there's some like fundamental paradox that can't be resolved, but that's actually, that actually strengthens your, conviction rather than rather than undoing it right totally and so and again this goes back to the nature of the 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 sort of origin of myth and scapegoating which is that 
you know, you have to accept the kind of unity of the the scapegoat who's this kind of abject and dangerous figure who's, you know, who's often represented as, as sort of filthy and, you know, repulsive in various ways, um, who's, 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 you know, combines all of these contradictory qualities already, right? Who, who combines both being kind of weak and at the same time, strangely omnipotent, who combines being, um, who combines a kind of high and low social status often. Um, but then you also have to accept the, the contradiction of how this figure can also be transfigured into a god, right? So how, how that, that sort of unity is at the core of how the whole, of how myth works, right? Totally. And, and so that doesn't, you know, in other words, just pointing to these contradictions and saying, um, oh, like you want to do this to protect the unvaccinated, but then you also think the unvaccinated are these kind of um, untouchables. Uh, how does that work? But, you know, that's in a sense not... <laughs> Like that's right. not an accident. That's that's part of how the whole system functions. Yeah, it's a feature, not a, a bug. And it yeah. reminds me of like Gerard's um, discussion of how I think his theory is able to account for the existence of both basically true and false symbolic knowledge in primitive cultures, right? That in, in some sense, for this whole mechanism to work, you have to have stuff that is irrational and erroneous and makes no sense. And then you have to have some things that are true. You know, there is a virus, there are vaccines that do for some period of time kind of provide protection and so on. On the other hand, you have all of these elements of the narrative that are totally irrational and basically nonsensical, but in some sense, they work together in an attempt to drive basically this process forward, wherein basically contagious conflict or kind of contagious scandals are transformed into a new, a new order and kind of a new sense of basically peace and unity, culture, et cetera. And like, you kind of have to have both sides of that. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm not even really sure how to address it, honestly, but it is, I think in some sense, to your point, we kind of participate in the system ourselves by, as I, for example, want to do by sort of critiquing, you know, the kind of uh, critiquing the ludicrous irrationalities we're being subjected to only. Yeah. Let me just make one sort of suggestion um, and then we can wrap things up. And I'm just curious what you think of this. So, you know, Gerard, and this, we've kind of been, you know, uh, skirting around this a little bit, but as I said, Gerard has this account of, you know, the, the deep relationship between myth and science. Um, but, you know, he, he has this idea that the emergence of science as we would understand it, which again, you know, I mean, one way to conceive of it is, I mean, there's a great essay by Stephen Jay Gould called A Moral Nature. And I think that's kind of a good phrase for thinking of what, what Girard um, understands by modern science, which is that basically it allows you to think about the natural processes in the natural world outside of a moral framework. Um, and so, you know, there um, there are different, uh, I mean, another account of it that I find compelling that Girard sort of draws on is, you know, this anthropologist Evans Pritchard, who basically is trying to explain which, why people believe in witchcraft, right? And what he says is basically that 
you know, these people in this, this African society that he's um, studying, you know, they don't, they don't lack a sort of rational causal um, explanation for processes in the world, right? They're, they're just as capable of that as we are, but what, what differentiates their approach and what causes them to gravitate towards accusations of witchcraft is that they think they're, or that they believe there is, or should be a sort of moral principle at work. So if, if some misfortune befalls me, then simply saying that is the result of a kind of blind natural process is not a satisfactory explanation. Instead in this worldview, there has to be some kind of moral agent behind it. Right. And so that's how you end up accusing people of witchcraft. So, um, so for Girard, basically, this this is the key to understanding how the the sort of Christian debunking of the scapegoat mechanism has an instrumental role in the rise of of modern science, which again is is essentially the a worldview in which you can understand natural processes as separate from moral processes, right? And this is what um, you know, another way of thinking about what Bruno Latour calls the modern constitution, right? That you're, you're able to separate out kind of the social and moral on one hand and the natural on the other hand. So basically the idea here is that um, once you, you know, debunk the notion that there's always some kind of moral agent, i.e. scapegoat or witch who's responsible for some catastrophe, then you have to start looking for other ways of explaining for, of explaining it. And this is what kind of frees up the sort of cognitive space necessary to engage in a sort of scientific, you know, a, a genuinely scientific analysis of natural processes, right? So that's that's a simple version of this argument. So, you know, a, a, <clears throat> one thing that I think, you know, in relation to everything we've been discussing is particularly telling is, and this is a you know, I've posted about this a few times, you know, but the, the thing that we've been mentioning over and over is that, you know, this whole public health regime that's emerged, it, it cannot fail because its failures can always be blamed on those who fail to, um, who, who fail to adhere to its, um, its strictures, you know, fully enough, right? So it, it, it's not the system that's failing. It's the um, it's it's the people who are failing it. So I think this is a kind of um, this is related to this connection between the sort of cognitive revolution of science and the sort of discrediting of of the scapegoat mechanism um, as follows. So you know it it seems to me again like not that long ago before public health came to have the, the kind of ideological function that it, it's come to have in the past two years, there was a notion that a public health intervention was essentially only as good as its actual um, execution and the outcomes it produces in the real world, right? And so that means if a certain number of people are not going to wear their masks properly or whatever, then, um, or are going to defy the orders that has to be calculated into the um, the assessment of the efficacy of the intervention, right? And so this is the basic principle that I think has been uh, seemingly abandoned, right? In the the construction of this weird kind of pseudoscientific mythical edifice, right? That 
um, these interventions are not assessed based on their actual performance in the real world. Instead, they're assessed based on um, they're, they're assessed based on the idea that if you don't adhere to them, you're an immoral person, and therefore any their failings can be attributed to the those who don't adhere to the the um, pronouncements of the public health authorities. So this seems like a very clear way that, you know, what we've been observing is a kind of reversion to precisely what, you know, science is supposed to avoid, right? Which is a kind of moralizing of natural processes, right? And so, you know, if I wanted to target anything about what's going on today, and if I wanted to, you know, focus my sort of arguments against any particular aspect of this strange dispensation, it would be probably that one, which is that if you're going to propose a public health intervention, then you have to assess it in terms of how it actually plays out among the real human population, rather than assessing it according to its intention and then saying that, you know, it's, um, it's, it's actual performances is, um, is, is assessed on whether, whether or not it's subverted by some like evil, um, you know, disobedient bad people who, who prevent its realization. So, you know, to me, that's kind of, I feel like that's kind of become the crux of the issue, but I don't know, you know, whether that, um, kind of attempt to dial back this strange, again, you know, reversion away from, I'd say a really fundamental kind of scientific principle has any hope, particularly given, you know, what we're saying in terms of the, the way that this reflects and manifests kind of broader crises that are afflicting, you know, really global society on every level. So I don't know if, yeah. if that yeah, makes really sense. And also what you think about you know, the prospects of that being, that kind of um, reversion being dialed back. I think, I, I think it's a very, I think it's very interesting and I, I, and very valuable to consider. And I do, I agree pretty much completely with your, with your characterization of it. And I would say that, I think that kind of returning to like Gerard a final time, the advantage that that, approach has is that it is able to encapsulate both the it, it points out the failure and inefficacy of the policies themselves right while also critiquing the sort of underlying scapegoat mechanism and victimage that powers the whole thing and i really think that any approach that's going to work is going to have to be able to address both of those things somewhat simultaneously because i mean thinking about Gerard's like broad arc of history, right? It's that we're increasingly aware of the dangers of scapegoating. And so I think there is a lot of power in calling out these scapegoat rituals, sacrificial rituals, however you kind of want to, whatever you want to call it. Because in some very deep level, I do think that certainly in the United States, in Europe, et cetera, people intuitively understand that it is wrong to blame one person for a vast, complex array of problems. And when you confront them with that, 
it, it immediately neutralizes for a large percentage of the population the you know response, which is to your point that inevitably, whenever you have these debates, it always just comes down to blaming somebody. Oh, we didn't mask hard enough. We didn't lock down hard enough. You kind of just neutralize that from the very from the get go. And so, I think it's a very important point, and it's one. It reminds me of a point that, um, kind of in conclusion, that Ivan Illich makes, which is that. You know, as long as people are in a ritual and they don't see it for what it is, the ritual is going to completely determine their view of the world. And so the, the way out of that is in some sense to kind of call out the ritual logic, which is, I think, in, in a sense, what your argument is doing. It's, it's sort of showing really quite clearly that, at, you know, the logic of bureaucracy, the logic of ritual, the logic of these interventions, it's kind of all the same. It's totally process oriented. And it's victimizing huge numbers of people. And, you know, I think most people understand that's a bad thing. Yeah. No, and, you know, I think this is a, an approach that, that Gerard offers that, you know, has perhaps been under, um, underutilized in these sorts of analyses. So, you know, this is just an encouragement to people to, uh, you know, dig into that literature and try to use it to make sense of what's going on. So anyway, thanks for the convo. It's been enlightening and I hope others will find it so. Oh, thanks for having me on. And um, yeah, follow Fitness Feelings at Fitness Feelings with a Z on Twitter. And also check out his... Um, guest post from a couple months ago on outsider theory and i hope you'll be uh, contributing more in the future thanks i hope so too